Psalm 44. Prior to tonight, we've looked at 15 psalms, and we'll pick up our study in the psalms in the fall of 2015 and look at 34 more on Wednesday evenings. And uh, I hope that these psalms have been a benefit to you as you've seen the practical words of wisdom that come directly from God's Word. And they also help to voice uh, your heart, your feelings before God. How, How ought you to speak to God in times of trouble? How ought you to speak to God in times of joy, in times of thanksgiving? And the Psalms help put words to our thoughts. Sometimes, I'm not sure if you've had this experience, but sometimes when I read a really good author, particularly one in which I agree, uh, he, he, he's able to voice some things that I've been trying to, to crystallize in my mind and haven't been able to do. And, and that's what the Psalms help us to do with our thoughts. There's some things that we've been considering in our own lives, and yet we're not able to really put them into words until we see the Psalms, and that's why I think God has preserved these for us. And this Psalm here that we're going to look at, look at tonight in our conclusion of this little short sampling of the Psalms teaches us how to handle suffering. Sometimes we suffer as a direct result of our own sin, don't we? For example, if I robbed a bank and I was convicted and sentenced to three years in prison, I would call that suffering, but that would be a just suffering. That would be justice that was served that I was serving, and it was a result of my sin. So I shouldn't really be complaining over that kind of suffering. But this psalm is talking about a different kind of suffering, not a just suffering, but rather what I would call a mysterious suffering. It's, it's a psalm that Job could have written about his own experience. This is written by one person, likely, on behalf of the nation of Israel, and it's called a community lament. We've looked at some laments before where David or one of the other psalmists will cry out to God because of some injustice that's happening to him on the earth. Well, this is a community lament. This is done on behalf of a whole nation that, that all of Israel is crying out to God because of a mysterious suffering. That is, they don't know why this is taking place. And I hope that as you you see this psalm unfolded for you and as we look at it together, that it will be a comfort to you when you don't have answers to your suffering. Let me read the entire psalm, beginning with verse 1. This is the Word of God. O oh God, we have heard with our ears Our fathers have told us the work that you did in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, then you planted them. You afflicted the peoples, then you spread them abroad. For by their own sword they did not possess the land, and their own arm did not save them. But your right hand and your arm and the light of your presence, for you favored them. You are my king, O God. Command victories for Jacob. Through you we will push back our adversaries. Through your name we will trample down those who rise up against us. For I will not trust in my bow, nor will my sword save me. But you have saved us from our adversaries. And you have put to shame those who hate us. In God, we have boasted all day long. And we will give thanks to your name forever. 
yet you have rejected us and brought us to dishonor and do not go out with our armies. You cause us to turn back from the adversary and those who hate us have taken spoils for themselves. You give us as a sheep to be eaten and have scattered us among the nations. You sell your people cheaply and have not profited by their sale. You make us a reproach to our neighbors, a scoffing and a derision to those around us. You make us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my dishonor is before me and my humiliation has overwhelmed me because of the voice of him who reproaches and reviles, because of the presence of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, but we have not forgotten you. And we have not dealt falsely with your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, and our steps have not deviated from your way. Yet you have crushed us in a place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or extended our hands to a strange God, would not God find us out? For He knows the secrets of our heart. But for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Arouse yourself. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Awake, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul has sunk down into the dust. Our body cleaves to the earth. Rise up, be our help, and redeem us for the sake of your loving kindness. Believers respond to mysterious suffering with the reflection on what God has done in the past and what God has done in His faithfulness. Believers respond to mysterious suffering by reflecting on God's faithfulness. So, let me take you uh, a little bit out of order. The first part, verses 1-8, through eight, would make a great psalm, wouldn't it? If you're following along while we were reading, you notice that it was very much a song of confidence and joy in what God was doing and what God had done. And if we stopped there, we'd say, this is a great psalm. But then it goes on and says, but you've, you've, uh, you've led us like sheep to be eaten and so on. And so we're going to skip the first eight verses for right now and we'll come back to that. But what I want to begin with is showing you the mysterious suffering. It is in verses 9 through 22. Mysterious suffering, the description of the mysterious suffering is in verses 9 through 22. First, the psalmist on behalf of the nation of Israel gives the details of the present situation. Notice that in these verses, the community of believers is perplexed about their suffering. The Lord is behind their defeat. They recognize that this is God. right? Look at verse 9. Yet you have rejected us. Verse 10, you cause us to turn back from the adversary. Verse 11, you give us as sheep to be eaten. Verse 12, you sell your people cheaply. Verse 13, you make us a reproach to our neighbors. Verse 14, you make us a byword among the nations. And then it shows the, the, the scorn that they receive as a result. So, so the, the psalmist on behalf of Israel is saying that it is, God, these things are in Your hand. This suffering we know ultimately comes from You. This is not a shaking of the fist in the face of God. And I'm going to show you why I believe that later on. But, but they're just acknowledging, frankly, that they don't understand why this suffering is happening. And they know that God does know. Notice in verses 9 and 10 we have the 
their defeat and retreat. You have rejected us and brought us dishonored and do not go out with our armies and You cause us to turn back. We have no other choice but retreat because You're not with us in battle. We understand that the way to win a battle is not because of human prowess, right? But rather it's divine appointment or divine divine judgment, whether God is with us or not, whether God has determined that we would win. And as a result, the people of Israel are plundered and killed, the second part of verse 10, and those who hate us have taken spoil for themselves. You give us as a sheep to be eaten and have scattered us among the nations. And then, if that's not enough, verse 12 is really a slap in the face to God's people, the people of Israel, these people who have covenanted with God. And you sell your people cheaply and have not profited by their sale. You know, we would understand if God sold His people for a profit. If God made a boatload of resources as a result of giving up Israel. But as one commentator says, it's like... Israel has been put out in the curb with a free sign on them. Or they've been put up on eBay with no reserve. God's not profiting from their loss. They're sold cheaply and there's no profit from the sale. In verses 13-16, through 16, they're mocked and humiliated. You make us a reproach to our neighbors, a scoffing and a derision to those around us. You make us a byword, a laughing stock the end of the verse says. Verse 15, All day long my dishonor is before me and my humiliation has overwhelmed me because of the voice of Him who reproaches and reviles, because of the presence of the enemy and the avenger. God, You have apparently abandoned us. And as a result, we are reproached by our enemies. Now, we would understand if God treated them that way because they were disloyal to God or because they broke covenant with God. But notice verses 17-22. through They claim their own innocence, don't they? And this is not some sort of pride, you know, their self-deception type of thing. I believe that they actually are innocent here and that's why I call it a mysterious suffering. Look at verse 17. All this has come about or come upon us, but we have not forgotten you. We have, we have not dealt falsely with your covenant. And he goes on, talks about on behalf of Israel, we have not forsaken you. And yet, for some reason, you have apparently abandoned us. Now, we need to understand that Israel is not claiming sinless perfection. There's a difference between claiming sinless perfection and claiming innocence. Okay, innocence, I've. I've shown before that innocence is more... I have no known willful sins that I'm committing against. The high-handed type sins. I know this is wrong, God, but I'm doing it anyway. Israel saying, we've asked for forgiveness for those sins. We've offered up appropriate sacrifices for those sins. Not saying we're perfect. We still have sin within us. There's still hidden sin. That we need you, God, to bring to the surface. But as far as we know, this is what Israel's saying, we've dealt with all of the sin that is besetting us. And that's something that we would be completely appropriate for us to do as well. To stand before God innocently saying, God, on the basis of Jesus Christ, I come to you and 
I have no known willful sin because I've addressed those with you. I've kept short accounts of my sin with you. And yet, look at verse 19. You have crushed us in a place of jackals. We were not disloyal to you, God, but you have crushed us. All of our loyalty to you has earned us a place with the jackals. And where did the jackals live? Similar to wolves and coyotes, where would the jackals live? Where humans don't, right? In a place where humans have not inhabited that land. In uninhabited places. And this is where Israel now is. Living among the wild beasts. Further support for their innocence is found in verses 20 and 21. If we had forgotten the name of our God or extended our hands to a strange God, would not God find this out? For He knows the secrets of the heart. So they acknowledge this before God. See, God, we know that You know our sin. And so if we were trying to hide something from You, wouldn't You be able to tell? Wouldn't You be able to search the inner recesses of our hearts? We can't put the wool over Your eyes, God. So where is this suffering coming from? Notice the picture in verse 22 of their looming death. But for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. In verse 11, you give us as sheep to be eaten. Verse 22, you consider us as sheep to be slaughtered. This is amazing. God's own people not being attacked by the enemies, but it's as if God is leading them like a a farmer would lead a sheep up to be slaughtered. This is how Israel sees themselves before God at this time. So, as you can imagine, Israel is disheartened. Israel is in despair because God seems far away and their defeat seems very near. So, for the believing Israelites. Remember, there are some unbelieving Israelites here. But for the ones who are believing, where does a believer turn in a situation like this? What can a believer do in times of deep distress? Turn back to Psalm 42. Psalm 42. The psalmist in the first four verses is distressed because he's experiencing something very similar to the nation as a whole in, in chapter or in, in Psalm number 44. He, he doesn't have a sense of God's nearness. He's far away from God. He's not near the temple. God seems far away. And in verses 9 and 10 of Psalm 42, His enemies are antagonizing Him. Sounds very familiar to Psalm 44. So how does He respond? How does the psalmist respond when he is in deep distress? Look at verse 5. Why are you in despair, O my soul? He talks to his soul. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him for the help of His presence. And then he repeats that same idea because he starts to think about these things again. Look at verse 11. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? And he reminds himself, Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him the help of my countenance and my God. And very likely, Psalm 43 is actually connected to Psalm 42. And that's why verse 5 of 43 says the same thing. 
Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, the help of my countenance and my God. The psalmist, in Psalm 42, in times of distress, discouragement, has to remind his soul to hope in God. Because God is loyal and He does care. And the psalmist needed to remind himself. We, we did this this morning when we sang the song, Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off thy guilty fears. Okay, Christ has taken your place. And, and there's no reason for us to fear. God is on our side. And so we need to say with the psalmist here, Why are you in despair, O my soul? Arise. Shake off your guilty fears. Hope in God, for I will yet praise Him. He is the help of my countenance and my God. So Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 provide for us a good example for how, that, how we can handle despair. And Psalm 44 is a great example of what that looks like in a community of believers. So, in verses 9-22 through 22 of Psalm 44, the believers there are suffering mysteriously. They don't know why they're suffering. They are appealing their own innocence. They would understand if they had been disloyal to God, but they haven't. So, they recognize that the only place to turn is to God. And so, what should our response be to mysterious suffering? First, we need to remember, there's three, three things here. Number one, remember what God has done in the distant past. Remember what God has done in the distant past. This is what verses 1 through 3 are about. God has been faithful to past generations. Look at verse 1. O oh God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us the work that You did in their days in the days of old. We need to remember what God has done in the distant past. And here's a good place to start, right here in the Bible. God has done lots of great things for His people in the distant past. And we have it all recorded for us. Remember what God has done. Remember how God had afflicted the enemies of Israel. Here, verse 2. With you, with your own and uh, with your own hand, drove out the nations, and then you planted them. You afflicted the peoples, and then you spread them abroad. So they're showing their confidence, even though later on, verses nine to twenty-two, they're going to say, "We don't understand why we're suffering, but we're putting our confidence in you, God, because we've seen what you've done way back there." And they even know that all the victory in the distant past of their fathers was a result of God's power. Look at verse three. For by their own sword, they did not possess the land. It wasn't our ancestors who won through their power with the sword and their own arm. That didn't save them. But it was your right hand, God, and your arm and the light of your presence, for you favored them. They recognized why their ancestors had been spared before. It wasn't because of their military might. It was because of God's power. And so they reflected back on that. So the first way we respond to mysterious suffering is to remember what God has done in the distant past. Number two, we need to remember what God has done in the recent past. Verses 4 through 8. Remember what God has done in the recent past. Here, the community of believers 
remember what God has done for them specifically. They, how they had seen God work. Verses 4 and 5, You are My King, O God. Command victories for Jacob. Through You, we will push back our adversaries. Through Your name, we will trample down those who rise up against us. They were confident in God's power to defeat their own foes. Notice verse 6, For I will not trust in My bow. Just like their ancestors didn't win because they were good with the bow or the sword, we're not going to trust in that because verse 7, You have saved us from our adversaries and You have put to shame those who hate us. And when God responds, verse 8, they will respond with praise. In God we have boasted all day long and we will give thanks to Your name forever. So, they had seen God deliver their fathers. That is, they had heard of God delivering their fathers. And they had specifically seen God deliver them, verses 4-8. through And they knew it wasn't a result of their own strength. And yet now we come to verses 9-22 through and God's not delivering. They're perplexed. They're confused. They're being reproached by their enemies even though they're innocent. And they believe, and I think rightfully so, that there is no logical connection between their defeat, their suffering, and their action. And so there's only one thing that they can do. And this is the third way we respond to mysterious suffering. It's found in verses 23-26. through We need to turn to God in faith. So, number one, we remember what God has done in the distant past. Number two, we remember what God has done in the recent past. And then number three, we turn to God in faith. Verses 23-26. through They had remembered how God had acted in the distant past toward His people. They remembered how God had acted in the recent past toward His people. And they were resolved to continue to trust in Him even when deliverance didn't come on their timetable. Look at verse 26. Rise up, be our help, and redeem us for the sake of Your loving kindness. Now, one way we would expect this perplexing psalm to end would be with the word, Why? Why, God? And yet, notice the very last word in our English translation, which is the same, comes from the the Hebrew word. It is loving kindness. Here's what's at the front of the minds of the people of Israel when they are going through mysterious suffering. Not why, God, give me all the answers, but Your loving kindness, O Lord. It's better than life. My lips will praise You. I will continue to trust in You. And so they say in verse 23, Arouse Yourself, God. Why do You sleep, O Lord? Awake. Do not reject us forever. Verse 24, It seems like God has forgotten us, right? Why do You hide Your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? Now, don't take this as disloyalty or or, uh, some sort of blasphemy. We know from our study of the Bible that God knows everything, and I believe that the people of Israel knew that as well. We know that God never sleeps. We know that God doesn't take vacations. 
But the way that circumstances go in our lives, we have to admit that sometimes, from our perspective, it feels like He's sleeping. And it's completely appropriate for us as His children to call on Him to awake. To The idea is to come to action. God, You are God over all things, including my enemies. And so, arise to action. Arise from Your apparent sleep. That's, I think, the nature of their questioning, of their request, of their plea to God. Verse 25, our soul is sunk down into the depths, into the dust. Our body cleaves to the earth. And just to be very straightforward with you, sometimes that's the best place for us to be. Because there's only one place we can turn when our souls, when our selves are clinging to the dust of the earth. When we're at our lowest. There's only one place for us to look. And that's up to God. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Hope in God. For I will yet praise Him. For He is my countenance and my God. He is the help of my countenance. Despite the perplexities of their current situations, these community, this community of believers is rising up in hope they, they are trodden down, beaten by the circumstances around us and not having an answer for anything. There's only one place for them to turn. Turn to God. So, we remember what God has done in the distant past. We remember what God has done in our recent past. And then we turn in trust to God, knowing that He's still there. He still cares for us. And, uh, and that's the only place we can turn in times of mysterious suffering. So, let me just summarize what we've looked at so far. The affliction in verses 9-16 through 16 is not a result of God's unfaithfulness because they've seen His faithfulness in history, right? Re- distant history and recent history. The affliction of 9-16 through 16 is not a result of their defiance or disloyalty because they claim innocence before God, verses 17-22, through 22, but yet they're still perplexed. They're still confused about why they're suffering. And so the only thing that they can do, verses 23 through 26, is trust in God. So that's just a a summary of the entire psalm. So let me give you three points of application in closing. Number one, when you experience mysterious or inexplicable suffering, talk to God about it. When you experience mysterious suffering, talk to God about it. The Psalms help us to put a voice to what we're experiencing. And sometimes the warrior in us wants to just deal with our problems, to just kind of grind it out. But the Scripture calls us to something even better. It's as if we're on the battlefield and we're being overrun by the enemies and we haven't heard from our commanding officer We don't know why we're being overtaken by our enemies. Has has he put us into a bad spot? Did he did he you know did he lose contact with us? The foolish thing for us to do when we're being overrun by our enemies is just to continue grinding it out. Instead, we ought to get on our walkie and let him know what's going on, to talk to him directly about our challenges. Now, 
keep in mind that even when we talk to our commanding officer, he may not give us the answers why. But I can assure you that he wants to hear from you. He wants to hear what you're going through. He already knows, but he wants to hear. And he understand he works primarily through your prayers. God doesn't generally in our age work apart from prayers. He works through them. So when you're experiencing mysterious suffering, talk to God about it. Secondly, trust God even when it feels like He is far away. Trust God even when it feels like He is far away. We live in a world that minimizes the intangible things of life. You know, they, they say perception is reality. You have to see it to believe it. And so we speak to our family and friends about God, and when things are going well, there's no questions that come up about how good our God is. It's only when we start to go through this mysterious kind of suffering when we start to get ridiculed. People say, what a fool. You lose your job, a loved one dies, we suffer some serious tragedy, and it opens the door for all this derision from our enemies, Right? And we sit there confused. Why is God not giving me the answer? I'm getting mocked by His enemies. And they mock us in open and in private. Where is your God now? And here's where the resolve in us as believers really needs to come out. In times of mysterious suffering, when we are being chided by our enemies, are we going to be able to take a stand for the sake of God even when our circumstances are difficult? When our circumstances make us look like fools in some cases to follow God? See, we need to trust that God is with us, that He cares for us, and that His plans, His purposes, even this mysterious suffering is best for us. Trust God even when it feels like He is far away. And then number three, the real evidence of our faith is trust when it feels like He's abandoned us. The real evidence of our faith is trusting Him when it feels like He has abandoned us. I say feels like because we have to keep, to keep in mind the promises of God. Let me just show you three texts that show us that God, the triune God, is always with us. Turn to Hebrews 13.5. First, I want to show you that God the Father is always with us. Hebrews 13.5. This promise was originally given to the people of Israel, and so when we see it in the Old Testament, we can quickly dismiss it, dismiss it because we're not Israel, we're the church, we're different. But notice it's repeated for us in the New Testament so that we can be sure that God the Father is always with, with us. Look at chapter 13, verse 5. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For He Himself has said, God the Father, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So, 
Here we have a promise. When those times of mysterious suffering, it feels like God is far away, like He's abandoned us. Remember this. God has not abandoned us. Turn to Matthew 28 to see the Son's promise. The Son is always with us. Matthew 28. And, of course, you you are familiar with these verses, but it's good to see them, be reminded of them again. Jesus gives His great commission for His church. And He's talking to the disciples, but He says even to the end of the age, at the end of the passage, so He's talking about all of His disciples to the end of the age, not just the end of the disciples' lives. And so we can be confident that this promise is for us. Look at verse 20. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, Jesus says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So, the Father will never leave us, the Son will never leave us, and then turn to Ephesians. Chapter 1, there's lots of places we could go here. Jesus promises that the Comforter will come when He leaves. But here's one in in, uh, Ephesians 1 that talks about the Holy Spirit as our pledge. He's the pledge of our inheritance, the guarantee, the down payment. The reason we know we're getting our inheritance is because we have the Spirit of God in us. He's our inheritance. Look at verse 13. Ephesians 1.13 In Him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. First John says, Greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world. The Spirit does not leave you. God the Father is always with you. I will never desert you, nor will I forsake you. Jesus is always with you. That is the Christ. Jesus in His physical body is not with us, but Christ, the second person of the Trinity, is with us. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And the Spirit will never leave us. And so when it feels like God has abandoned us, we need to to put our eyes back on the promises that we know are true. That the triune God doesn't leave us. We have to be sure of God's enduring presence so that in times of perplexity and in times of mysterious suffering, our hope is still fixed in God. We are too quick to focus on ourselves and our circumstances. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him. The help of my countenance and my God. We need a faith that is so strong that it supersedes that which we see with our eyes. I'm not talking about a blind faith, but I'm talking about a faith that trusts in God and His promises, especially when our circumstances look hopeless. Let's pray. Father, we pray that You would help us to think rightly about our circumstances. We would love to have answers for every single thing that comes into our lives, particularly the the mysterious things. So we pray that You'd help us to recognize that suffering is not about us, that we exist for You, not the other way around. 
pray that You'd help us to recognize that, that You are doing what is best for Your glory and for our good. And though we may not, never have the answers in this lifetime, we can be confident that You are always with us and that You always do what is best and good. So Lord, help us to fix our eyes on You so that when we experience this mysterious kind of suffering, that we can take full advantage of the freedom that You give us to turn and honestly admit our perplexity before You, to talk to You about these things, to lament our situation but then to pray for help and ask for Your grace, depending on You and on Your unfailing love. Lord, Your loving kindness is better than life. We have seen it in the past, in the distant past with believers of old, and we have seen it in our past, our recent past, in our own lives. We've seen You work so many times. Your loving kindness is better than life. So help us to be reminded of those things, And I pray that You would strengthen those here who may be going through that kind of difficulty right now where they don't have the answers. Give grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.